It was still the first day of the week that evening while the disciples were behind closed doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities. Jesus came and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When the disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sin, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they aren't forgiven. Okay. Thomas, the one called Didymus, one of the twelve, wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, unless I see the nail marks in his hand, put my finger in the wounds left by the nails, and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. After eight days, his disciples were again in a house, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus entered and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into my side. No more disbelief. Believe. Thomas responded to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus replied, do you believe because you see me? Happy are those who don't see and yet believe. Then Jesus did many other miraculous signs in his disciples' presence, signs that aren't recorded in this scroll, but these things are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, and that believing you will have life in his name. All right, that's the word of the Lord. Thanks, G. Um, so this week, uh, the other day, I found myself on a really long Earth Day walk. And I wish I could say <laughs> that it was planned. I wanted to be very spiritual and reflect and pray and join in the chorus of groaning creation in gratitude and hoping towards redemption. But really, I had a Zoom call and I just needed to get moving. I couldn't start my day <laughs> off that way. And so I started just out here walking through Wrightwood Park and I made my way to that trail that uh, comes up to Duke Forest and the golf course. And I was very ably multitasking. Uh, I was periodically unmute unmuting and throwing in some insight to let them know that I was still there and I kind of cared, right? <laughs> And then when I, when I kind of looked up and snapped out of it and the meeting ended, I was at that portion of the trail where they had dug an area to create wetlands. And this is like, this is not it, by the way. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Uh, it, like, it's so unassuming. They, they had to, like, document and put up signs to tell you what you were seeing and that you should not just walk by and that you should notice it, right? Um, all around, there was, there was signage to help you access what was going on, that this isn't just like a big wet mosquito trap, though probably kind of is. There's a lot going on there, and this area also, as you keep seeing signs, you start to notice like, oh, this, this is a, a really good birding spot, um, because it's telling me it is, and all of these birds exist here, but also because I'm seeing and I'm hearing the birds around me. It kind of reminded me of, of where I grew up in Florida, and how there's wetlands almost everywhere. Um, I didn't grow up in the Everglades, but this is uh, the Everglades National Park. 
And people really sleep on the Everglades National Park. It is the third largest of all national parks um, behind just like Death Valley and Yellowstone, greater known ones. Then this is trivia that the Whistlings probably know by heart. They, they travel national parks. You can ask them about that. But these wetlands and this famous wetland in particular is way more than just like gators and airboat rides, which it is certainly that, but it's rich and it's biodiverse and it's a habitat that has more than 350 species of birds and 300 species of fresh and saltwater fish and four, 40 species of mammals and 50 species of reptiles. It is, it is teeming with life. The soil there is fecund. It is not always easy to see, um, like, like it's easy to see the ornamental and verdant life of like, even on campus, Duke Gardens or all of those planters with all the bulbs that come up at just the right time for the donors to come in, right? <laughs> there are no neat rows in wetlands. There are not harvestable produce in this place. Also, wetlands are kind of hard to define. <laughs> to define, it's kind of like what are they? They're not ocean or sea or lake. They're not, you know, forest or field. They're not a prairie. What are they? They're kind of that weird both and. They're that in between liminal space. And trust me, like wetlands don't often feel like the very safest places to be, especially when it gets dark and you have a flashlight and you shine the surface and you start to see a bunch of eyes looking back at you that you didn't know that were there. It also might not even be the most obviously beautiful looking place, but it is rife with possibility. These, these wetlands, these in-between spaces, they are teeming with new life. So we get this passage from John's Gospel in the second week of Easter. Did you all know that Easter is still happening? Easter is not just a day or a moment. It is an event that happened and is ongoing in its consequences um, for us and for the Christian life. And so we get this Easter passage, and the disciples are, though they are like fearfully enclosed behind locked doors, they are introduced to a similarly confusing new terrain, this weird new both-and terrain. So on the first day of the week, they're met behind closed doors by the risen Jesus. By the risen Jesus comes to them behind locked, closed doors, the least likely place you think you'd find <laughs> and the least likely person. This man who had been crucified brutally, publicly, embarrassingly so, just a few days before, was now with them and offered them peace. He comes to stand, the text says, in the middle of them. And he speaks three times in this passage. So when it repeats like that, pay attention. He says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. I am with you. This is simple, but maybe that's all you need to hear from this sermon today. So <laughs> grab a Mad Lib, tune out, embrace peace be with you. That, I, I would feel successful if I did that, but you can also keep listening. Um, but there's so much unpeace 
that spins around in our lives, in our head, in this neighborhood all week. So, so maybe we can come here, we can open our, our lives, open our minds, open our hearts, open our hands, and, and receive, and then also turn around and offer this peace to others. Ephesians 2 tells us that, that Christ himself is indeed, by the cross, our peace. That, that Jesus has somehow become shalom. Has, has become the putting back together of the world. That Jesus has broke down dividing walls of hostility and entered into lock rooms. So this is the sequel to last week's proclamation at the tomb side that he's not here proclamation. Don't go looking for him in a dead place where he is like under control and we know where he is and we know he won't be coming back. Don't even assume that he can't and won't come to you in the place that you are currently isolated in. Jesus is entering in and standing among us speaking peace. Even now, friends, peace. He is offering them more. He is offering us more. Forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when he comes, he bears gifts. Forgiveness, and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. This is strange and overlapping territory indeed. In the midst of their grief and their fear, they are given liberation. And they are given a friend. In, in grief and fear, they are given Freedom and a friend. They're given the ability also to, to be a part of this liberation by the means of that friend. Offer forgiveness to others. Like free others from bondage, like from the heavy sin that, that drags us all down, even used to drag us all down to the grave, to hell, to death. Jesus has broken that. The, just by his appearance, has broken that system, has driven a spoke into that wheel, and so sin is now no longer definitive. Forgiveness is. Resurrection is. New creation is becoming that real, real, definitive reality. The Holy Spirit was breathed into Jesus' lifeless body, and now life is available. These dry bones can indeed live. This is the confusing new newness of it all for these disciples. It's coming into being right in that room. It's not really a do-over. It's a new beginning in the middle of the old for everyone that has already been through it all. It's, it's, it's good news for a battle-worn creation that has wounds and scars to show for it all. This kind of wound-formed <laughs> wound spirituality is not, it's not new, it's not exclusive, it, it's actually shown up in the church um, throughout time. Not always, sometimes the church uh, does everything we can to cover the fact that we've ever been wounded and actually inflicts a lot of wounds on other people in doing so. But I think of a wound-formed spirituality in someone like Julian of Norwich, and she wrote about three wounds that she asked God for as a young person. You already know like the kind of person that she was when she's a young person asking God, God, please give me three wounds. 
she was destined to be an anchoress, right? Like, to live by herself with a cat and a walnut, right? Uh, <laughs> but, but she didn't ask for physical wounds. There were some, like, pretty harsh and distorted medieval, like, self-mutilating practices at that time. She didn't ask for that. The wounds she desired, she, and she, she viewed them as wounds, but also as gifts, was the wound of true contrition, the wound of natural compassion, and the wound of willful longing for God. Contrition, compassion, and longing after God. She wanted an open heart. She wanted an open heart that was open to see and brave enough to, to suss through her own sin, to ask for forgiveness. She wanted an open heart to the hurt of others that she wouldn't close her eyes or close herself off from that. And an open heart towards God, always, ongoingly. It's a rare and beautiful insight to have such an open heart, like Christ. And, and that that open heart might express itself not, not in, in um, strength or muscles, but in wounds. Let those who aspire to, quote-unquote, spiritual growth and maturity beware. Wounding might be coming. So back in our story, some time apparently passes, and somehow Thomas missed out on all of this beautiful, holy commotion. Old Tommy is right to doubt. Like, he shows up, and all of his friends are like, this happened, trust us. Jesus showed back up, and, and he, he's never seen his friend like this before. No one has. And so, as often he's, as Thomas is maligned as doubting Thomas, I, I actually think, think Thomas gives us the great gift of his doubt. He kind of goes first for us. If, if doubt was even what that was. Thomas is actually... Cautious, but he's also curious. Those are good traits. We try to teach our kids both of those things, right? He wants, he wants to believe. And, and he's known as a saint, St. Thomas, one of God's holy ones, particularly in and through his doubt. And his doubt had a, a certain shape to it. It was a really handsy, tangible doubt. <laughs> Thomas isn't standoffish in his doubt. He's not retreating in his doubt. He is engaging in his doubt because Christ was hands-on with his disciples, participatory. Christ's life in death was hands-on with the sin and the hurt of this world. So, of course, the resurrected Jesus would also have that shape, offering his hands, his feet, his side to Thomas. Investigate away, friend. Probe, prod, I'm here, I'm yours. I'm the same Jesus that you knew. You get a sense that, that this new, new thing is taking shape in their midst. I love the, the poet Malcolm Geit um, writes a sonnet about Thomas. He says, we do not know. How can we know the way? In Thomas's words, courageous master of the awkward question. <laughs> <laughs> he spoke the words that others dare not say and cut through their evasion and abstraction. 
O doubting Thomas, father of my faith, you put your finger on the nub of things. We cannot love some disembodied wraith, but flesh and blood must be our king of kings. Your teaching is to touch, embrace, anoint, feel after him and find him in the flesh. Because he loved your awkward counterpoint, the word has heard and granted you your wish. Oh, place my hands with yours. Help me divine the wounded God whose wounds are healing mine. Thomas was invited to know Jesus in a new way. That, come to think of it, wasn't all that new anyways. In his life, his friends knew Jesus through his wounds then too. Maybe not so viscerally, <laughs> but they witnessed Jesus in grief and in disappointment. They'd seen Jesus in conflict. They were taught by him to find space to retreat, to um, find rest, to be with God the Father, to be renewed. So when we are with Jesus, there are no kid gloves. There's no too awkward questions or need for evasion or abstraction, in the words of the poet. We need to make sure we remember that Jesus always offers himself wholly to those who ask. Jesus always gives of himself. That is, that is Jesus' very nature, is to, is to give. And, and Jesus gives out of the security and in nearness to the Father and Spirit that has existed forever and eternally. So that means we don't have to protect Jesus. We don't have to apologize for him. We just need to come to Jesus and learn to be near him. Near enough to touch his wounds. Near enough to let him heal our wounds. Jesus has like a simple twofold invitation. Well, it's simple. It's like twofold with like one and two A and two B, but we'll call it twofold. Jesus says, touch and stop doubting and believe. Touch, stop doubting and believe. I hear the second one as, a, as an outgrowth of the first. Stop doubting and believe. It's not a slap on the wrist. It is a, another gracious encounter with the one whose identity is, is authenticated by his suffering. Like, <laughs> I, I think we're, we're so often nervous that the fact that our Savior has wounds may, like, disqualifies him from being God or good or for us or with us. But that's actually precisely what makes him all of those things. Jesus' rejoinder to Thomas is compassionate. He gives, he, gives, he gives Thomas an off-ramp by saying, stop doubting and believe. An off-ramp from that spiral of having to be certain or to maintain control or to anticipate all the counterfactuals, what do people think, what will people say. <laughs> when it comes down to it, Thomas's encounter with the risen Christ is weird. <laughs> You're allowed to say that. It is beautiful, and now it must be the whole basis of Thomas's life. Encountering a Jesus that rose from the dead with wounds still visible and, and tangible, 
It's weird, beautiful, and now that is the ruling story for Thomas's life and for ours. Thomas can stop doubting and he can believe. Not because it isn't confusing, but because it's not even really about Thomas. <laughs> he answers beautifully. Maybe the best and maybe the only response possible. He says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Thomas gets it. At least as much as he needs to get it. The rest of his life is spent unfolding the implications of this encounter and that response. That's what it means to be a Christian, to say, my Lord and my God, maybe even just for a moment of clarity <laughs> or a moment of encounter with the risen Jesus, and, and then spend the rest of your life trying to make your, your life make sense around those words. My Lord, my God. What, what if people met us and, and, and we were so strange <laughs> they said, I can't make much sense of them except for this strange thing they believe that God came, became a human, died, and rose from the dead. And they are linked up inseparably from that person. What if, what if people said that about our, our fellowship, our relationships uh, were, were so strange and, and just indescribable that the only like, reason for them was that Jesus died and rose again and gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our, our reading closes with the purpose of not only this meeting, but the whole record of it. It says, so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's son, and that in believing, you will have life in his name. You believe, and in believing, you will have life in his name. Friends, you have been given grace, and you have been given peace you have been met by the risen Christ himself. No locked door can be a barrier for, from that meeting. You have been given the gift of the same spirit which raised Jesus from the dead and is resurrecting us. You've been forgiven. We've been forgiven. We've been given strength and courage and to forgive, but also like to, to be forgiven, but also to forgive others. That kind of that's, takes a lot of strength and courage to walk into those waters. You're allowed also to doubt. You're allowed to explore. You're allowed to remember. You're allowed to try to hold in this hinterland, this pain and this joy that feels oppositional, but also most of the time takes up the same space in our lives. You're invited to wake up once again or maybe for the first time in your life and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, God's son, and that in believing you may have life in his name, you're allowed to do that. And now, by these marks, by the marks where the nails have been, these folks in, we are being invited also into this new newness. God's renewal was taking place, God's renewal is still taking place amidst the cracks and fissures of this world, through the wounds, in the confusing terrain of the overlap between what has 
already come and what is yet to come. We feel that pain. We feel that constant tension and struggle. And Jesus' resurrection has brought about a new and strange ecosystem and economy where God's healing is sweeping into the present from the future. And it's pulling all of these present ingredients that are, that are strange and don't seem like they make the right cake, pulling them all together into this shalom-making new newness. And so like Thomas, it's best if sometimes we're a bit confused by this, by, by the scope of it, by the scale of God's cosmic redemption that is happening locally. It's, it's even happening so locally, it's happening personally in us. There are microcosms of the new creation happening every day when you wake up. Trust that. When you wake up tomorrow morning, even though it's a Monday, even on a Monday, there are microcosms of the new creation happening and awaiting us. That's the world we now live in because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's a world that we bear witness to every single time you do kind of normal things, but kind of miraculous things like experience forgiveness from either side of it that happen when you do things like walk in hope and not despair, even if it's not fully formed hope, that, that happen when you participate in healing, even the sort of healing that is so slow, it's just kind of callous making, that's a kind of healing too. And that, that happen when you receive and when you offer a hospitality that is making room for Jesus to show up in our midst. Friends, will you pray with me? God, we give you thanks for this good news. Peace is with us. We give you thanks that you are making peace. You have made peace. And you are bringing about a new newness that includes us, that is far bigger than us, and um, that we can participate in right now. Uh, thanks for your spirit that makes us new, that makes hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, and that um, brings about first fruits of new creation that we join in with you. Thanks for this community, the ways that you're teaching us and, and showing us and empowering us to bear witness to um, all of these things. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.